Tom Taff. Welcome to Damnation Versus. How are you, pal? Good, man. Thanks for having me. No, not a problem. I'm looking for the booking agents are, are few and far between. So thanks for <laughs> thanks for coming on. I'm going to give you a bit of an introduction to to the fans so they know who you are and why we're going to listen to you for the next hour or so. First off, you are the man who's responsible for Neil's playing Damnation back, I think it was in 2016. Your roster includes the likes of Sleep, Exodus, High and Fire, Every Time I Die, Daughters, Paul Bearer, While She Sleeps, Between the Buried and Me, and oddly, which we'll get to, Vance Joy <laughs> and uh, Julian Baker, who I'm a massive fan of as it happens. So... I did not expect that, but that makes two of us. Yeah, tell us, tell us how how did that come to be? That's my when I was looking at your roster today. My first question was how, what what happened there? Usually, it's a thrash roster, a hardcore roster, death metal, and then here you are with Vance Joy and while she sleeps. Well, I think, I mean, Julian Baker specifically. Her, um, I came across a tweet. I don't know how many years ago now, and it was actually by. I believe the singer of um, Touche Amore um, out of California. And I clicked through on it and it was basically to Julian's first ever video. And at the time it had maybe a few hundred views, I guess. And I clicked through and actually knew her manager and uh, we'd worked on an artist before and, and emailed and, you know, it, and he was up for working together. And, you know, initially the response was, we don't even have an agent in America why would we need an agent in Europe? And I, it basically, like a lot of the role of agents now, is you've got to get in early on and you're part of the process of developing their name. And, and that is where promoters are very involved in these days as well. And so, you know, Julian, we just kind of spread the word and that first record was all word of mouth. And when it first started, I couldn't, the amount of promoters, and I've saved all their emails where they rejected having her. Right. Um, and you know, as the tour got closer, we, it's small rooms, but 100, 200 cap sellouts, and it just built from there. And then signed to Matador, and the media found her, and it just rolled from there. But I think that the one thing I, and it kind of ties into Vance Joy as well. I mean, my roster is I come from a rock and punk background, but I do enjoy all sorts of music. Um, but I think I've always tried as an agent to not be you know, everyone has a different approach mine is i really want to book as much as possible and to broaden my skill set and i have used stuff from the american country music scenes into rock and vice versa and it's just different approaches to developing artists to to booking and how you put tours together um but it's also good for broadening your awareness of promoters because there are promoters who you wouldn't come across but work in the same city and they're just in very different worlds. Yeah. Um, so which, I mean, you know, again, from, from meeting Julian, you know, her favorite band is Every Time I Die. So there's things in common. Yeah, yeah. The, so when you're saying that um, we don't even have an agent in America yet, so why would we need one in Europe? So you've found Julian ba ba Baker at a few hundred views in a video. Do you, where do you represent, where do you represent your bands largely? Is it, is it UK and Europe or do you do some worldwide stuff or, or where, how does that fit in? And where, where do you sit at the now? Let's stick with Julian Baker then. Where do you sit with Julian Baker at the minute? Are you the representation for Europe or all the world or what? For Julian, just uh, UK and Europe. I have about, you know, 50% of my roster I will handle 
for the world except North America and for the other 50% just Europe. And I mean, that can be so many different reasons why that comes about. I mean, the historic way was whichever agent found it first. Well, sorry, I take that back. Originally it was the European agent would handle the world except North America. And then over time it became whichever agent comes on first typically gets the territories they can get. But it's very rare. It's not impossible, but it's very rare that an agent based in Europe will represent in America as well. Um, why, why is that? Is it a feeling that American agents are better or they just know the territory so much better that it makes no sense to have someone based in Europe? Um, I, it's a personal opinion. I would just say that America is a different beast. And it's kind of one of those things where it's the, I mean, for example, that, you know, this is going a bit bigger, but Paul McCartney's agent represents him in North America and for the world. And he's based out of London. But that's Paul McCartney. Yeah. That's different. Yeah. Uh, for, for smaller stuff, like I wouldn't personally know the, I, I wouldn't have the relationships, the, I mean, I could look at a map and stuff, but at the same time, in terms of getting the best deals for your artists, I would rather stick to the territories I know inside out and focus my attention on those, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk a bit about the territory. So you operate in the UK and Europe then. So what is the glaring differences even in that small space of the world? Where you can say, right, okay, this is what I know in the UK, but that will not apply in Germany or Spain or whatever. I think that there's, there's some things here and there. I mean, I'll, example being, I mean, a lot of the, your listeners may not, you know, know the likes of Vance Joy or other artists of mine. You know, they're more folk, pop, um, you know, surf, you know, Ziggy Alberts is a client of mine who, you know, he is heavily in the surf community. If you think of Jack Johnson, Ben Harper, you know, he'll sell out Brixton Academy, but he'll also play to a few thousand people a night in Europe. And in that specific genre, you typically find that the Netherlands, Spain, uh, and Germany will be the three countries that uh, you find the following in first before you get any other Europe mar European market. Right. So, and then when it comes to the rock stuff, it's very different in that, Every time I die, we'll have a, the UK adopted that band pretty quickly, but then some of the other European countries have been a bit slow on the uptake. And then you go, well, okay, something that's a bit more, um, a client of my emotionless and white, they have, regardless of like, even if there's no promotion on the record, their European fan base just keeps getting bigger. Right. So perhaps it's the style of music or the, the theme or the beat, the lyrics, you know, you never quite know, but, um, I find that sometimes um, the exact lane that an artist fits in musically can help them in certain countries versus others. Yeah, and we, well, let's take every time I die for an example. They're one of those bands that just, I mean, Hot Damn is one of my favourite records. I mean, I love that. And every time I die is one of those bands I'd love to have at Damnation, but I don't know how you feel about it. Like, would it work? You know what I mean? I, I, I think it would, but the fan base will be a bit like, well, why, why are Every Time I Die playing? What's your feelings in Every Time I Die at Damnation? I think, I mean, that band, they love a challenge. And I've put, through, I've put them through some of the, the worst driving experiences of, of their careers. <laughs> um, and they've come out the other side and haven't sacked me. But, you know, they definitely, they're road dogs. And they all, their whole thing is about challenging themselves and reaching a new audience. You know, yeah. what, when they're, with what they're doing, of course you want to be 
more popular and find new fans, but at the same time, they want to play cool shows. Yeah. So their, their whole attitude is, they, hey, if they can get a main stage slot at a big festival, great. But at the same time, you know, one of their favorite shows, we did a run in London oh, a few years ago now where it was um, four shows in four days and all different capacities. And the smallest show was The Old Blue Last at 140 people. And they loved it. And, it's, and I've done them, I think that was the Monday after download, we played, uh, Jesus, uh, The Black Heart in Camden, which was yeah. maybe I think we sold 110 tickets. Yeah. And it was just, I mean, the stage is maybe 15 centimeters tall. Yeah. So it's kind of one of those things where they do love a challenge. And I think that, okay, maybe some of the Damnation audience wouldn't care for them. But at the same time, I'd like to think that you've thrown enough curveballs at this audience over the years and they've lapped it up that they'll yeah. probably enjoy seeing something that they haven't seen before or yeah, maybe I, something I, they would expect to see. I don't even have a fear about the not enjoying them. I think Damnation fans would enjoy them. Is that initial reaction? I was when I had the podcast with Becky, we talked brisk so obviously she, she booked Parkway Drive to headline Budstock and ate a pile of shit for it and then showed up at a time and the place is absolutely packed and people are going. So you're never quite sure how much of that internet shit that's getting thrown at you as anyone who would ever attend your gig or ever buy the ticket, you know? So my feeling is, I had Churisass play Damnation. I mean, that's the, the weirdest curveball will ever get thrown at a Damnation fan base. And I was gutted to see the fans enjoy that. So it's like... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're a challenging band to book. They were, it was not so much... We didn't... They were going to play Leeds that night and they were either going to compete with Damnation or they were going to play Damnation. And I was about like, well, fuck it, we'll, we'll, we'll roll the dice and, and stick them on the main stage. And I think, it's not that much, I think on the day, they felt that they were probably, they were probably a lot bigger in their heads than, than, than we gave them. We gave them a slot in the main stage, but they were still under Godflesh and Grand Magus and, and bands that bands that are bigger in our eyes and Damnation fans' eyes. And I, I think that they were a bit pissed off they weren't either headlining or main support, and it just became a bit of a drag the full day. But it, it, that's, as I say, they played, 2,000 people went absolutely batshit for them, had a great time. Damnation's audience is like that, but we don't get a lot, especially on the day, we don't get a lot of, oh, why is this band here? Why is Joe Quayle here with a cello? That, I mean, Damnation fans are fucking mature adults and decent music fans. So, I mean, everything would die. If that can ever happen, if that can ever happen, you can get them in uh, UK at that time of year then uh, I will, I'll, I'll take a punt. I absolutely love it every time I die. I mean, they're the ones that they were always looking for things they haven't done. You know, yeah. we've, um, we've tried, you know, we haven't given up, but the hope is that maybe they can play Roadburn one day. And it's kind of, I think that uh, sometimes the best festivals are the ones that are the hardest to get on because the promoters that know them are just so particular about what'll work and what won't and it's not that they don't like the band it's just that it doesn't suit their vision for that year or the, where they would want that band and you know the thing is like um i'll use say like uh Gros rock if you've ever heard of that festival in belgium yeah yep. and it's one of my favorites of all time and anytime i would book a band on that festival every band would ask to play the third stage which was maybe a 4,000 capacity tent and it had no crash barrier, no crash barrier and a low stage. And every band wanted that one. No one wanted the main stage. 
And, you know, every time I die as a sort of band who, hey, if it suits a main stage is great, but they would almost rather play the best show. Yeah. And that's kind of, they're in many respects, one of the easiest bands to book because the live show is incredible. Fans love them. And the, they're just very easy and likable to work with from everyone involved's point of view. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we're going to get, I'm going to go through some of the bands in your roster later on this. So let's take it. Here we are today. The reason that I thought it'd be particularly interesting to talk to you at the moment was um, because you sent me an email. You're involved with uh, the Paul Bearer and Iris. We've got a third band that will be announced later on. But yeah. um, that tour, you're now looking at Plan C. You're looking ahead. You're, you're trying to be a good agent, I suppose, and saying, right, okay, well, no one's got any fucking idea what's happening with this vaccine rollout. When we're going to get into gigs again, we need a plan C, which I'm sure you're doing with all your bands. So here we sit now, January 2021. How's the landscape as you see it for the tours ahead? And what's going to happen? And is that from a booking agent's point of view? I think that there's so much we don't know. And I mean, I've spent the last... We, we, we stopped going into the office on, I think, March 6th. So we've been working from home since then. And we've spent eight to 10 hours a day putting different tours together. You know, I think some tours, I think I'm on the seventh or eighth reschedule of them. Whether we've announced it or not, it's another thing, but it's a time consuming thing to reschedule everything. And I think going forward, you know, you can read in the, in the press, and I know that there's, um, the briefing was just on a few hours ago. And it's great when you hear about vaccine rollouts and testing and all this stuff. And I mean, the reality is that the summer festivals will have to make a decision in the next four to five weeks, we're told. And it's not that they, you know, it's not, we don't know what's gonna happen in the summer, but in terms of the cost of setting those up, whether it be infrastructure or the, you know, if they want it to happen, they're gonna have to ramp up their marketing now to sell the tickets. Yeah. And it's one of those things where if you push ahead till, you know, May 28th and then your festival's in June and you have to cancel then, that's millions of pounds or dollars or euros that you've lost. Yeah. And no, one, no insurance company's giving you insurance for that. No one's going to fund that. And you're screwed. And again, the bands as well and the crew and the bus companies and everyone, no one can commit to something unless it's foolproof. So I think that what I'm saying to my artists is let's try where we can to have as many plans in place. Keep it as simple as not have like differing, you know, say the tool we're working on, I think I'm on maybe the third attempt at it or something like that. But it's one of those things where we're trying to basically copy and paste the exact tour. So it's the same venues, same promoters, same everything. And we're trying to just minimize it. And the benefit being, I know that, hypothetically 2021 can't well we decide it can't happen at some point because of what we're told yet you can't talk, you know you're not prohibited from touring till november 22 we can work backwards and fill it out with festivals or shows if it doesn't clash with radiuses and all that stuff um but i think that that's all i mean i don't want to say it's worst case scenario because who knows what worst case okay. scenario is. <laughs> but it's all about the planning and kind of saying a you know, to people like yourself, like it, we've put so much work into that particular tour happening. And we really believe that the festivals we're doing, the club shows that we're doing are the ones that will, this lineup will do really well and the fans will love it. 
if we can just keep it going. Yeah. So I guess that's where um, it's a little bit more difficult to reschedule tours when festivals are involved because we are, as I said to you, like trying to figure out what everyone's potential dates are for next year. Um, but I, again, like I don't have a crystal ball in my head. It's just all planning. But, yeah. I, you know, the reality well, is... What else can you do? I mean, what, okay. you can sit here and just sit across your fingers and, and hope. I mean, that's not going to serve anybody <laughs> any good. I mean, what happened, I had Hayden Britland from um, Northern Music on one of the podcasts, and he said what a lot of the agents thought at the very start was, oh, well, come August, September, we're good to go again. So everybody read planned their tours for the end of 2020. Then they filmed this, and then 2021 was like this magic date. So like the Ocean Svalbard tour went into January 2021. The Venom Prison tour went into January. That seems ridiculous now because they're all falling. But what about, what I've seen happen, or let's take Woodburn for example. They've said, look, we just can't keep saying that that lineup you were getting is just going to keep rolling on one year, two years, three years. So we're not promising what we're promising at, at, at and for 2020 now for 2022 we're going to rebuild this some of the bands may also be so that must be difficult for you as an agent then because you're saying you want to copy and paste but then if you've got Hellfest, Woodburn, Vacking and everybody in between saying look we just need to start again because how can you get people excited about a festival they're supposed to see two years ago we need to promote something new new albums new tour new everything so have you came up against some of that? Um, not as yet, but I'm prepared for it. I've spoken to a number of festivals across Europe and the, a lot of the ones are preparing for the fact that they might, maybe they'll move, if they have to, they'll move 10%. It's just, that's just a number picked out of thin air uh, across the 10% they want. Maybe the headline is maybe the hype bands, whatever it is. And the rest of it, they'll have to start from scratch. And I, from their side of the coin, I can't blame them because to go up with the same lineup for third year in a row, it's going to be really tough. I mean, you can have a new poster, but it's hard to get people excited about that lineup again. And you'd think that so many bands that weren't touring originally are now available. So it's the, you know, no one wants these festivals to go underwater or just go bankrupt. It's just kind of, we, we need everyone viable. So I'm preparing some artists for, the fact they might not get re rebooked again. And it's nothing personal. It's just what it is. Yeah. I think for those artists, it's, the, you know, the challenge they need to wrap their head around is they will have been booked for two years in a row. Their name will have been used to sell tickets for two years in a row, yet they'll never get to play the show and never get paid for it. Yeah. So that's a difficult pill to swallow, but that's just the reality we're facing. And I think that if those bands step back for a second they'll realize that it's more important to keep these festivals alive because they might get booked in five years time when they need it again yeah. and that's kind of it's more important that um we keep the festivals going i think some of the perhaps some of the more um niche festivals will copy and paste where they can because some of those bands will all like you know there are festivals where a certain band, regardless whether they're on album cycle or not, will always be important to that audience. Yeah, that, so, that, that damnation's a case in point with that. I mean, ultimately, no one's going to... It would be tiresome to put Pig Destroyer on that poster for the third time and say that here we come back and it's Pig Destroyer again. But ultimately, no one's going to have any less interest in seeing Pig Destroyer 
instead actually be probably more people are so goddamn desperate for anything that Big Destroyer will see like fucking Metallica. So it's a, no, I get I, I get that, and it's a that's a it's quite a depressing answer. Just but at the same time, it's the truth, you know. It's have you? I, I, I've got I, I've got. A, understanding the UK scene, I know some of the European festivals, obviously you're more tuned into that. I mean, have some already gone to the wall that you're aware of that are just not going to be coming back? The, the smaller ones that are just like, fuck it? Um, no one yet. Um, I think everyone is doing the best they can to survive. And so far, so good. Um, I know some promoters are wary about venues that won't be available in um, going forward. You know, and I, it's it's just all a bit uneasy right now. I don't think anyone's gone under just yet. Um, hopefully no one does. Yeah. Um, you know, we did see the festival boom. Jeez, I can't remember how many years ago that was. It, and it felt like a lot of festivals were going under, uh, maybe it was what, five years ago or something. And it was just too much and not enough people. And perhaps it came down to lack of fresh talent. Maybe it was just some inexperienced people that didn't quite understand what they were getting in for. And, and that's, that's something we're always going to have, where it be promoters who will pay too much money or agents and bands who will ask for too much money. And if you get paid a huge sum and you're not worth it and the festival goes under, then it's, it's a risk for everyone. So, yeah. you know, again, that comes back to my point about uh, promoters that probably know what they're doing in terms of know their scene really well. Because if I come to you with an outrageous fee, you come back to me and say, uh, I remember one of the discussions we had in, I can't remember what year it was. And I think you basically said like, take away London. I don't care about that. Let's focus on Glasgow or Manchester or Leeds. And, and you're right. Like, that's what it is. And especially yeah. if it's like damnation where, okay, maybe there is a element of a radius clause, but at the same time, it's a common sense clause because of where you're trying to draw people from. Yeah. And, and the valuation is, again, it's like, if we want to play the festival, we might do less UK shows, but at the same time, the worth, the worth doesn't always go skyrocketed up because there's less shows, because it really does boil down to how many tickets are you going to sell? But, you know, again, like some of my bands on your 2021 version, are they bringing people just because of their name or are they like another flavor? That people are coming for the whole experience. Yeah, yeah, that one when you're saying, right, okay, Wolves in the front room and Big Destroyer are the reason I'm going, or the reason mm -hmm. I might go, but now you've got, a, as you say, maybe an Iris or a Paul Bearer, and you're saying, right, okay, now, now I'm in, because now I've got a day's worth of music that I can enjoy. And it's interesting, a few points you made that were interesting, the the sort of collapse with mass side of things, like the big example of the collapse of Sonosphere not happening anymore, and that's no lack of experience for people, obviously the guys involved in that are seasoned professionals, but from our, our side to the end of the scale, you had Northern Darkness, Heavy Scotland, Temples Festival. There was, it seemed like it was a new sort of indoor extreme metal festival happening every fucking year. And it all just kept going by the way. So what was your experience of at any of those events if you are involved with your artists? I don't recall having any artists that were on the Sonosphere year that didn't go ahead. I mean, obviously I work with the promoters of Sonosphere on, I mean, I, you know, Alan there is, is probably one of the best promoters in the country and a very good friend. And he, you know, they did a great job. I think that, and this goes, I mean, I'm again, you know, whether it be Josh at Old Empire or Cam at Live Nation, like some of the best rock and metal promoters in the country. 
And I think the challenge that any festival of scale has in this country is that there's only, in any one summer, a certain amount of bands touring. And at the same time, is there enough, if you're in the rock and metal lane, is there enough talent in that exact thing to draw 80,000 people or whatever the number is? And if you look at the summer that just got canceled in 2020, you had obviously Download, and if Reading has a heavy band, you've got that to compete with. 2000 Trees, Arc Tangent, uh, in the summer on Bloodstock. And then you've got to factor in Slam Dunk for an element of the audience as well. And then when Ramstein come in and drop a, you know, multiple stadium shows, and you might have Aerosmith or Bon Jovi or Pearl Jam, like there's only a certain amount of money to go around. Yes. And you'll find that I think the challenge with any festival is when they fall in the calendar, because no one at the level of the Metallicas and Slayers of the world, they're coming in to a period in the summer where they can play as many festivals as possible. So I think that, you know, for example, it might not have always been the case where Download and Sonosphere competed for the same act. It simply might have been, we're coming in July or August. So Download don't even get a shot or vice versa. So I think that, um, the year that, I mean, there was at least one or two years where Sonosphere was insanely successful yeah. because they had the lineup to sell that year. Yeah. And there's been years where, you know, people will criticize Download for having a headliner they don't love. But at the same time, you're looking behind the scenes and you kind of feel bad for these people because you know how many artists that either aren't available or want too much money or said no or... Yeah, whatever. Because well, what have you got left? I mean, I, I'm I'm completely. I know Cam re reasonably well, but we don't have discussions about the bands that are available for for deals. But from a guy from outside looking in at something that scale, right? And if you're pissed off because Muse are booked or because Biffy Clyde are booked, like, like once you take those bands done and you've already done Slipknot, Metallica, Iron Maiden, ten times <laughs> over, right? I'd love to see fucking Pedal Jam, Foo Fighters, I want a download, but there must be reasons why those bands just aren't there. There must be other stuff for them to do. And you know, you're a bit, they're up, they're up against it. They're up against it, download with it. Because there isn't that. I remember, I went to download from, was it 2000, 2003 when it started, right, for the first 15 years. And it seemed to be a year that Slipknot never really done anything different. I mean, there were, there were three, four albums in, they were as big as we were going to be in, and somebody just said, fuck it, they're a headliner. Because <laughs> if Slipknot don't start headlining, Iron Maiden and Metallica are going to die. Guns and Roses are fucking once every five years. We need someone else, but Slipknot, Ramstein, Tool obviously get moved up as well to fill this slot. And it seemed like Slipknot done that show, and after that, it was like a body Friday headliners. It's like they are. Like, you know, for example, the there are like um, the Pearl Jams of the world. They can make more money doing their own show, and they can get 100% of control on production, lineup, everything. So yeah. why would they do a festival when they can sell out of Wembley Stadium or wherever it is? And you think that, I mean, the year that ACDC played, some of the, I mean, I, I have no idea on the money, but you just imagine it's insane. But they wanted their own stage. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Like, <laughs> so you kind of, again, I'm not a festival promoter and, and I don't, big or small, I'm sure you've had it as well, where there has to be years where you decide to put having a better well-rounded lineup versus putting all your money into one band every year I, every year i would rather i i don't 
I can't, I mean, I, I enjoy seeing the headliners at these festivals, but at the same time, it's the content during the day. And the best thing that Download have done in the last uh, four years, maybe, is have the third stage a little bit for the younger demographic and the fourth stage for the, the diehards, whether it be, I've had Exodus play that stage, the fourth yeah. one, and I uh, was due to have Higher Power play it this year, well, last year, uh, maybe Loathe as well. And it's one of those ones where if you don't like it on the main stage, if they've got an amazing lineup on the whatever stage, you've got every reason to go to the festival. Yeah, and absolutely. I think absolutely. It's attracted me back. I'm a, I'm a Hellfest devotee, fly to France every single year, but it's only the weekend before download because I just, it got to the stage with download that just wasn't, I, I like a lot of, I mean, Deftones, Nine Inch Nails, these are my favourite bands, but it was getting so few and far between and I was seeing more of, who's that fucking terrible band, Shinedown and this stuff. <laughs> it just fucking pure, I mean, ear rot, just it's, it's difficult to sit and watch. It's so terrible. And it was just getting more like that. And then, I don't know if it was, it was coincidence that Cam came in at the same time or they just had a new plan for the full stage. But then you were getting Carcass and Exodus and Sepultura and like last year's like Dying Fetus and fucking Obituary are due to play it. And just, uh, it's a, it can really attract you down. You can be like, well, listen, there's, I still want to see a Ramstein. I still want to see a Tool or a Deftones. But I've got a full stage now that I've now, I can go and see Zealand Ardor and Merker and Carcass and have a, yeah. a right good day in the, in the fourth tent as well. Which beforehand, it, it really wasn't like that. So I, I completely, I completely agree. I, I, I kind of feel, you know, it, it can be a struggle for some of these festivals. And it's not just, download in the UK or Bloodstock in the UK, for example. But, you know, I think that if you look at Hellfest, where it's geographically positioned, no one's looking to play too many headline shows there anytime soon in terms of the audience, like the, the Maidens and the Metallicas of the world. And these are big festivals where there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people from all around Europe fly to these festivals. It's not just, you know, 60,000 French people. And I think that, it is a little bit of a challenge with download because, or a bloodstock or an art tangent, or they're paying premium prices because you do honestly need UK exclusivity for the most part to, to ship the tickets. And it's hard to sell sometimes. So I don't think they could be as niche orientated. In some ways, they've got to deal with what they've got. And the bigger the festival, perhaps, you know, there's more people fighting for your attention. And I've been, I've been the difficult person to work with for these festivals in the way that if I have a band that they really want, but I've got my eyes focused on a headline show or a headline tour that I want to, I don't want any distraction. I want anyone who wants to see this band buy a ticket for the tour. So we say no to every single festival. Right. And when you've got people like Vicky, like Cam, like Alan, like just going, why are you being so difficult? You know, and it's just... That's just what it is. And it does go around the other way that I'll have bands that are worth, you know, one figure. The band believe they're worth six times more than that. And the promoter feels they're less than what I value them at. Yeah. And everyone's just, we're never going to reach a compromise. And it's yeah. frustrating. What do you um, do with that? So we've, we've had those conversations as well with, with some bands. You've been like, right, okay, we've got a figure here. And I'm like, not only... With a, that I'm looking in that figure, but I'm looking that figure for Damnation. I could see the value in that said band for another show, but Damnation sometimes are taking a wee bit of punt with these bands as well. 
so how how often does that happen when you've just get because it surely nothing gets anywhere until someone accepts a compromise. So if you've got bands that are saying we're not going to the UK unless you can get us seventy grand by the time we leave the UK, and you're like fuck, I'd be lucky to get his twenty. I mean, it's like so. <laughs> I take it these conversations happen at some point. You either reach that compromise or split or part ways. Yeah, a lot of the time it is. Um, that's just unrealistic, and you often find that more the case when it's a band reuniting and if it's primary if it's an american band reuniting you know we want a million dollars a show that's just not going to happen you might get that in america fine and what we in europe are getting to grips with is that the diehard fans for that band if they're reuniting there's a good chance you are above the age of 30 and you'll probably have the disposable income to fly to america for the big reunion show yeah that ticks that box and then by the time it comes to europe you're not worth if you headlined you wouldn't be worth that much money and the glitz is going at that point so i think that we went through a phase where the reunited bands were getting insane money in europe and promoters were sacrificing the overall quality of their lineup to get those i think we're past that now for the most part but for me as an agent if i can't get the fees it goes one or two ways that I'll quit, they'll sack me, they'll try another agent, the exact same approach to see if it can be a different story. Um, or they just won't come. And, and that's kind of how it goes. And I mean, I think that uh, I, I, I had one situation with Download where Andy Copping felt very strongly about having the band, uh, believed in the future. And we worked out a deal where it was almost a multiple visit UK offer so however we split the money up was down to us but he came up with the figure we needed and but he was the promoter for the whole thing and it was just down to us to figure it what figure it out and if we couldn't if we put all the money on the first trip we still had to come up with the money to make the second trip we were contractually bound yeah so i think that that is a creative way of going about it and, I, and this particular band was not a big band this was one that had high production costs and he simply believed would be a great flavor for the festival. And was and it so right? That, sorry? Was it right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's talking point bands, you know, and it, it's just, I, you know, again, like I will always, I love to find something to fight about. I'm that sort of a, you know, I'll text a promoter whatever time it's and odd. be like, it's not that you're saying that. I mean, genuinely, when you're coming, like, I'm not a big fan of agents, really. I mean, I don't, this isn't my career. This is what I do. I do damnation. And I, I dip my toe in the water. I organise my festival once a year. Organise a couple of maybe shows in Glasgow every now and then. So I can always look through the lens of this is not what I do. I'm a journalist. I, I, mean, I, had, a, I had a newspaper. I'm, this is just something I do on the side. But my, my thing with my agents is I don't, I don't particularly like a lot of agents because they've got there's a, there's a real arrogance and there's a real a bugbear that I wasn't going to bring up with you because you've never been that guy. But that that I did bring up when Hayden, who has a good friend of mine, but they're saying agents when they don't just tell you a fee, when they don't just fucking tell you a fee, like they already have all the information. They have all the information. They know exactly what needs to happen. And what they do is they say to you, give us an offer and understand why, because they want you to come in with something stupid. And they want to say, your band's worth five, but I'm offering you 10 because 
because I'm inexperienced, because I'm excitable or, or whatever. And then you get the money and that's great. Agents done a great job at it. And some agents, when you go back, they say, in their head, they want 10 grand, right? But they say, make us an offer. And in my head, I'm like, I know they're probably about three or four. I'll offer two, two and a half. And then they yeah. come back. It's some fucking some personal insult that you've offended them. <laughs> like, you've, you've spat <laughs> you've spat my wife. You're like, this is, you won't tell me what you want. And then you're getting worked up when I'm trying to lowball you because I'm just trying to get a figure. But the, the reason that this doesn't matter so much talking to you is because you never do that. You know about like that's if you say to someone like I, an agent who is asking for an offer is asking is basically hoping that you throw a figure in there above what the agent wants. The problems you run into with that is that you know if the offer is too good to be true, I have I mean, well yeah even yesterday sent an artist an offer, and it was this is too good to be true. I don't want to do it. And I have gone back to a promoter this summer and actually reduced, the, reduced his offer by a third and just said, it's too much money. Let's be smart about this. Because I, whether they're trying to get the band that badly, but the thing is, if it's too good, it, there's always problems there. I don't care if it's a festival or a headline show. If it's too much money, there's problems there. My, on a club show, I will, a promoter might feel it's too much money, but I can at least give you a reason why. So you can at least attack the reasons why I think they're worth that. I would obviously, if I feel strongly about it, prefer that the, I mean, obviously, without getting too into the, the details, I'll prefer the percentage of the bonus on success is in my favor if it goes well. Yeah. The thing is, obviously I don't want to send promoters bankrupt. And if, you know, it's happened on headline touring where if I push the promoter really hard on the fee, and it doesn't sell early, like sell out early, then the promoter's up against the wall. And rather than put the work in to rescue the show, their first course of action is to cut costs to protect their loss. Yeah. So I think that from the agent's point of view, if, if I get an insane fee, I'll call it out because it's, it's just, my first job is to protect the artist. And at the same time, I have to be able to argue to the artist or the promoter why it's a fee too low or why it's a fee too high yeah. and you know how we survive because the artist doesn't if we confirm for 10 times what we're worth that's great on paper but if we never get paid the money then that's a problem and it can put a hole in your tour yeah so it's kind of one of those things where i'll give you reason i don't know if you've had any bands in the old fest but that seemed to be Luckily, that seemed to be the the thing with that it was a lot of, and I, I'm I'm not coming on this podcast continually shitting temples, but that was my understanding exactly what happened. That bands were getting offered silly money, <laughs> and what happened is you get that ripple effect. Is then I was getting the shit from the band that was worth five hundred, saying, "Oh, we get two grand," and like, I know, but where is that festival? Where yeah. is that festival? It's not here. Why is it not here? Because it hit the wall. And why did they hit the wall? Because fucking agents and bands took all that money. Absolutely. And that's yep. the same thing with, um, because of when it, I had, there was one really successful, I don't know if it was, the, there was one year where I got paid up front, full fees, and my artists had a great time. But it was one of those things where they were, because of the wearing the calendar it happened, a lot of the artists were flying in for it. And from America, that is. And 
that's to, it, of course, it sounds exclusive because they're not playing anywhere in Europe, but you've got to pay high fees to get fly-ins. Yeah. So in terms of either you're in a period like the summer where there's a lot of festivals or you're in a period, say, that Damnation is where there is a number of festivals that you can kind of book a tour around. Yeah. And, you know, again, like, the, what, what I, everyone should understand is at these festivals, these artists, you know, say, like, not at Damnation, but, say, at some other, you know, across European festivals, Paul Bearer would sell, you know, I think you get to maybe sell, what, one T-shirt in the, in the merchandise stand, and you pay their sellers, uh, you know, between 10 to 20% of your income yeah. on that T-shirt. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll reference uh, Nails at a festival in Europe they played a few years ago where they didn't even bother putting their T-shirts into the merch desk because they're like, it's not going to sell. We'll just rather not go through the hassle. So I'll talk to, say, Paul Bearer, and they'll be losing money to play these festivals because if they headline their own shows, they'll make a lot more money on merchandise. Yeah. Do you know what, no, really, that's a, you keep hitting these points here, Tom, that are kind of bugbears for me because I don't, Damnation does not charge any concession. You bring as many fucking t-shirts, CDs, whatever you want, and you sell it at a free merch store provided by the festival, and it's all yours, have at it. If you want someone I need to pay to come in and sell the t-shirts, there is a commission fee. You can still sell what you want, but you need to pay for the person behind the store there for 10 hours. So bands have always got a choice. It's a pretty, I would say, 75% of the bands um, sell their own stuff. You'll get people that fly in and say, oh, well, for the sake of 100, 200 quid, we'll just have somebody else sell it for us and we'll get pushed in our dressing rooms. So that's fine and dandy, but agents don't take that into consideration at all. What you'll get is... What you get is the you get screwed for the the fact that the festival fee is twice the touring fee. Even though we're doing another fucking six dates in the UK, you're treated as a festival, even though it's just damnation. You're treated like your download. Then it's all the production headaches that they still want for our headline tour coming into your event with twenty seven other bands, and then no one is giving you the the props are due for saying well I'm not trying to take any sort of money from your band for their merch and that that if you get a band that's that's touring for a grand they can make a grand in merch in damnation there's there's three and a half thousand people there and they're all buying merch I mean damnation merch makes a fortune that's the I, 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 I I'm not really asking you a question here I'm just ranting at you when <laughs> you find like I've had artists play Grows Rock and Slam Dunk and uh, Roadburn and all and and the merch income alone will pay for their flights from America. Yeah. So it's those festivals that it does work. And, and, it, and again, we talk about, it's finding that balance, you know, for certain artists of mine, I will try and put them in venues where there is no merch concession. You know, the electric ballroom, I think you pay a hundred pounds in London and you take, you sell and you take everything. So it's an amazing venue to play. And, you can make a lot more money selling a lot less tickets in that venue, for example, compared to some others. So I think that all that stuff does come into it when we're putting tours together because I want to keep ticket prices low. I want to keep the artist fees low. It's, it all works, you yeah. know, and I think and the biggest challenge that, that we as agents have in the, I would say rock space, like the wider rock space, because for some reason, packaging is a lot more important in rock, punk, metal than indie music. And 
the, you know, we will spend hours trying to fit a square in a round hole because band A wants more than what the headline is getting. And yeah. we're trying to figure out the money and all this sort of stuff. And um, it's probably the biggest challenge that we've got generally, but at the same time, it's an amazing, when you, me as an agent, when I see, you know, any other agent who's pulled together an incredible lineup, I respect that because I, I know exactly how hard that's been for them to, to get that together. Yeah, yeah, it, it, you know, you're totally right, and it is, you don't get the same sort of, the, the tools, the packages, and other types of music, not, not that I know of, and I do like a lot of different genres, but you don't see that, that you're getting some bills. Sometimes a, a touring package can go out, and the top three bands, you could almost argue per territory that they could literally switch positions. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, it's, you're really getting, your, you pay your 15, 20 quid for a ticket, and you're really getting a, a great show. It, a good case in point will be the show that is going to come together. Like we're putting together, yeah. going to be, the other band to announce to that, is every bit as big as Paul Bear. So it's a, mm. uh, no, I, I agree with what you're saying. You mentioned Nails. So as I said right at the top of this, that was a that was a band that you were responsible for bringing to yeah. Damnation. I also <laughs> I also booked them with you for Glasgow. They went on yeah. stage for 14 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I don't know if I saw that on the internet or you messaged me about that uh, or someone did. I mean, the thing is, I, I, I don't work with them anymore. Um, Todd is, uh, I haven't spoken to him in a few years, but I, I, I know their manager well, and I still really love that band. I think yep. Todd's a great guy. I think that we had more fun and happy times than we did negative times. But I think that doing, you know, I mean, that aggressive music, they, they, it's not an act. It is, if you see them, their live show, especially on a good night, he's putting everything into that show. Yeah. And it's not something that he can be pre-show and post-show a different person. It probably takes a while to get that level of um, aggression and, and to also come down from it. And I think that he's also a perfectionist and he knows what he wants. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it was weird to kind of see the, the varying responses and, um, in a way, I guess it brings back a little bit of rock and roll yeah, <laughs> to the world. I mean, because I, I, we, we get the best, well, I, as a promoter, get the best of both worlds. I mean, you've got the Glasgow show where people rightly can say, well, can I get my ticket money back? Because <laughs> I saw I saw 14 minutes of a band I've just given people to come to see. And then the Damnation, they fucking blew the place away. I mean, it was, for some people, that nail show at Damnation will be the best show that they've seen at Damnation. It was utter carnage I mean it was like every square fucking inch was a mosh pit and they played the entire set and it was it was sublime it was utterly sublime I mean that's the thing I think they um they're not the first I mean you, you think of um at the drive-in over the years as one example where you genuinely you do not know what band you're getting that night and I've been to shows of theirs which uh were dreadful but I've also been to shows which were you know amazing experiences now I haven't seen them since they reunited because I just worry about what <laughs> one I'm going to get. So I kind of, I, I, you know, it's, it's one of those ones where I think that I happened to see nails on a few occasions where it was everything I wanted it to be. And so it's tough to kind of then, yeah, take good with the bad. And, yeah. and I think I would rather 
a band that pushes it to the extremes than a band who, you know, to use the phrase, phones it in every night. Yeah. Like it's, uh, it's I mean, so, you know, consistency is amazing, but it's hard to do it at that level. Yeah. Oh. Is, is there something with them you mentioned earlier, the, type, the term hype band? I mean, they define what you would say hype band. And Nails are one of those bands. I had Batushka. They turned out to be a very difficult band to deal with. But again, as soon as you put them in a poster, it becomes very exciting. We've got, obviously, the bigger bands. But you get some bands that are just McGlaw, right, in 2000. You put them on, the tickets just fucking rocket. I mean, Nails, Batushka, McGlaw, they, they bands you put on, they're just they're, they're riding a a wave at the time that you that you book them. So was there a frustration with that? You're like, you've got something special there. You've got something that promoters are falling over themselves to get for you and you're just like, it's just the dots aren't connecting. And, and clearly, nothing's changed. This isn't a Tom Taff issue. The guy's been on Instagram, fucking bands and pieces, they hate each other. It's like, yeah. as you say, it's, it, there wasn't an agent in the world that was just going to make that right. But was that frustrating for you to be like, fuck guys, we could have been we could really have done something here. I mean, I kind of think that if, if it was going to happen, it would. Uh, I mean, I, I, I look back to, I think their first ever London show was at a venue called Birthdays. Underground, maybe 200 people in there. And the, I hadn't heard from the band. There was no tour manager. And there was no, I got to the venue, support band was on. There was no merchandise set up. There was no band. I had no clue where everyone was. And then I think 10 minutes before Nails were due to go on stage, they came through the door holding the merch bags above their heads, dropped the merch at the table without taking out of the bags, got on stage and plugged in and away they went. And it was just one of those things where it's like, that was my first experience with them. So I knew what I was kind of getting from there. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there was, we, when they, uh, well, when we first parted ways, there was actually some really big tours in the works for them, um, them supporting. And it, it was, that was the shame because I do think if they'd played to those larger UK and European audiences, it would have been amazing. But I also worry what it would have been like them playing big rooms, not saying that they couldn't, but it's such an intense yeah. um, show. Like I, had, I worked with a band called Let Live who, you know, again, didn't mean anything over here. We built them up. Their first London show was The Old Blue Last. And we did a thing where it was one pound entry, only 150 capacity. There was a line around the block to get in. It was, you know, there was no pre-sales, pre pay at the door. That's yep. build excitement sort of thing. And we had a good few years with them. But in those years, the amount of nights where I would be at home, I would be with one of my children, who can't get to sleep. And I'm getting a call from a promoter saying, security's just shut the show down because the singer climbed this balcony and jumped off. And, you know, there's all these things where I, when you kind of, in some instances, like he has to almost, he's done it one night, he has to do it every night to keep that hype up. Yeah. So I think that when you are, if, you, if it's intentional or not, that you are in this hype bubble or you're the band at the moment. It's just trying to manage it. And I think sometimes it's just not manageable. Yeah. I uh, think, you know, there are artists who come through the other side. I mean, I, I didn't live in the UK when Trivium first blew up, but I was even talking yesterday, there was a show they did at Download 
on main stage maybe four years ago, where it was that I, I felt that they that was such a triumph of a set for that band. Yeah. Where it was, you know, they've come through being the hot band, not being as hot. And that's just a, a show of, and also, you know, they were the band that was probably criticized by the older school metalheads. Yeah. And now that audience is perhaps embracing them. Yeah. Yeah. I like to see that. I like to see that with, um, with bands that kind of just made that out and becomes, because I hate the, I know I was shitting and um, shine down and disturbed earlier, because, yeah. but that's because they're terrible. Whereas um, Trivium, there was nothing ever wrong with them. They just came out, they were, they were maybe a bit too polished for the... I, I mean, the idea that Metallica and I are made in fan telling anybody that, oh, this is the way it should be is ridiculous to me anyway. But that's, you know, that vibe, especially at Denver Young, people just think they know better. They're this whole sort of gatekeeping mentality fans have got. I say that as I'm calling the stub shit, but then <laughs> it's just a, it's an opinion. I mean, I I like they sell a lot of tickets and, you know, I think that I went to a... Um, a festival in Chicago, geez, got to be five years ago, and Disturbed was headlining. It was like at a, um, whatever the Chicago um, MLS team is, it was at their stadium. And um, Disturbed and all that sort of stuff was the main stage and was great, you know. I'm not a fan personally, but it obviously was huge. But what that did was get thirty to 50,000 people into this arena. Yeah. And on the second and third stage was... Let Live, Code Orange, you know, name Absolutely. it, you know. So I think that I didn't, you know, I didn't discover, I don't know, Every Time I Die as my first band. It yeah. kind of, everyone has the gateway stuff. Yeah. So I would rather, I do respect that whatever big festival has to sell the tickets to be a viable business, if they can, and most, well, everyone I work with, they, they I, trust their talent for what they're picking if they program it correctly uh you can potentially well if, if you're if you go to download and you don't leave the main stage all day i think good for you but that's your loss if you yeah. walk around the site and you're actually open to trying something different you'll probably be surprised with some of the stuff you discover yeah and whereas potentially damnation because it's a little bit more of a a smaller audience, maybe a bit more of a niche audience. Maybe the people are coming there looking to discover as well. Maybe they've listened to something in advance. It certainly feels that way now. I mean, we are 15 years in. It certainly that that does that seems to be one of them. Like you can book Opeth and sell a couple of thousand tickets, but there's a couple of thousand tickets can already been sold by people that are saying. I, I saw this weird comment on uh, Instagram or Facebook or days, it was like, same as a nails picture, because oh, that was a great year. However, it wasn't the one of my best because it was a year that I went there and I knew the bands. He said, <laughs> he said what, what I get most with Damnation is showing up and finding three of my new favourite bands. And that year I kind of knew the lineup, so I knew what to expect. I knew that I liked Paradise Lost or I liked Sodom or, or whatever it was. I thought, fucking what a bizarre compliment slash insult. That, uh, that's, you're coming to Damnation because now you're saying, that's my go-to for new music. I want to go and find out about Iris. I, I didn't know anything about it. I want to find out about Joe Quay. I want to find out about Conjurer or Employed to Serve or Venom Prison a few years back before they started coming up. And you're like, right, fucking okay. That's not the, it's not the, the role we were trying to play. I mean, we don't... There isn't a real arrogance about Damnation. We're not trying to be roadbound. We're trying to be Amplifest. I saw the day that they called our festival an experience. I mean, we're just a couple of guys booking some bands, you know what I mean? But it's a... Uh, 
people have now got it in the UK that that's a, an event you can go to and trust that the band opening the fourth stage are going to be fucking good. I mean, it's going to be the Do you, when you're programming, do you worry about an artist that has played too often? And are you trying to keep it as fresh as possible? Yes. Or are you simply trying to, you know, if a band just has a new record, is that good or means a lot to that audience? Will means they nothing, almost play more often? Means nothing to me. See, album cycles, touring, all that means nothing to me. I never, because I came into this from a completely fresh sheet of paper, it made, so when I went after, when I booked Electric Wizard, Electric Wizard might not have released a fucking album in four or five years. You know, it's like, I booked Electric Wizard because I think people are going to want to see Electric Wizard because I want to see the Electric Wizard. So that's what happened to that. Then you get like a carcass is a special one. Because that, that, I've never thought about an album cycle. I've never thought about a touring cycle. I've never thought about any of that because I've never been exposed to that. I mean, I came in as a city. Are you seeing now artists and agents who have done, you know, for example, every time I die, I've done Slam Dunk, Download, Reading and Leeds, 2000 Trees. Are you seeing bands who have done a few of those and are saying, hey, we've never done Damnation. Let's focus on that. So are you getting artists that you might not have got a return email from or even were asking too much money before that have changed their tune? What we're getting now is certainly, I don't know if it's a bit of done the other ones and now they're saying, oh, there's Damnation. We haven't done that. What I'm seeing now is there's Damnation. It's like... Yeah. Ten years ago, it was like, what is Damnation? Five years ago, it was like, ah, can I start with Devin Townsend's playing? And then a couple of years, then you're about like, shit, fucking Opeth's headlining. And it's about now, like, hold on a second. There's this event in Leeds that doesn't really make all that much noise outside its own wee bubble. But you, you, can, put, you, can, put a, you can put a band on there who are playing 300, 400 cap rooms and they can play to 2,500 people on the main stage at Damnation. The smaller bands can go to the second stage and play to 1,400. You can play the third sure. stage to 800. You can play the fourth stage to 600. So then you'll get a band like Imperium Triumphant, Triumphant there, coming across from New York. They'll see what's going on in the UK. They can play the headline slot at the fourth stage to 600 people. And then no matter what else happens at the rest of the tour, they're a bit like, well, we, we sold a bunch of merch. We had a big exposure. All the press is there because nothing else is happening in November. So... There's more of that, it, and, and believe me, it's only the same, it, it's still like Doomstar are big, or, uh, for the listeners that are listening, and they who don't know what Doomstar is, that's a bunch of agents that are based in Europe, they want a lot of their bands on now, so there's, there's Wolves in the phone room get thrown at as way, Mom and all these kind of guys, so there's European agents now saying, let's get tours organised round about Damnation, where there's guys that were based in the UK, Hayden Britland, Andy Farrell, for example, where they've been doing that for five years, Sure. A longer, they've been saying, right, this is what it is. And now you, that'll lead us on to your roster because what I'm hoping, or what I've noticed, or what listeners wouldn't have known, known about is the relationship between a, an agent and a promoter is far more important than what you think for outside looking in. You wouldn't well, think yeah. it would be like a, a buddies act. You wouldn't think, you think like, that band is worth five grand. I'm a man who's willing to pay five grand. Will that band play this festival? The truth is, no. The answer's no. You need to get lucky. But if you've got a relationship with a promoter and an agent, things, whole rosters start showing up at your festival. So, well, it's trusting. It's not, it's not that the festivals, if, if it's a no, it's not because it's a bad festival. It could be it doesn't suit the plans. It could, there could be longer term strategies involved. 
Um, but at the same time, I've had endless discussions with, there's very particular festivals where I know the sweet spot. I know at Rock and Ring, which is a big one in Germany, which is I think, you know, 80,000 people or something. I know the exact stage and the exact stage time I want my artist to play. Like that's the perfect slot on the festival. And it's not main stage. And yeah. every year when I book an act and I say that, the promoter's like, Tom, I think you are insane, but fine, I'll make this, I'll agree to you on this. I think you're wrong, but fine, but I'm right. And it's one of those things where you grow to learn the sweet spots. And, and I'll give an example with the Damnation, Iris are a newish band, just put out their, their first record last year uh, on Nuclear Blast. And I mean, you took the punt to book them because you, you might've seen potential, you might've just thought, fine, I'll, I'll throw them a bone. From my point of view, I want them to, you know, there's a dwindling market for press these days. It, they're just, it's, it's narrowed over the years. And I know that if 600 people or, you know, 200 people can even watch them, that's 200 people more that my, I, I'm that confident in their music and their live show that those 200 people will tell friends. And because people travel, let's just say for, I can say from all around the UK only for your festival, that might mean that next time we can go to Glasgow and there's a little bit of a scene because those people have come from back from Leeds to home to Glasgow, talked about the band. So the strategy there is it's going to be a great show. It might grow their audience. I'm, putting them in a safe space because I think that the quickest way for them to grow an audience in the core audience is at a festival like Damnation. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate you saying that and I, and I totally agree. No, I had that, I put that question to, to Hayden when I, ha I had him on the podcast. Like sometimes I get a wee bit of a beam up on it. People just get excited about the idea of getting that slot. I say download, let's use download for example, but it could be really dread and bloodstock, whatever. And they're like, at Damnation, we want a headline or main stage, even though they know that the headline main stage is going to be like two and a half thousand, three thousand people in that freaking room by the time it's absolutely packed. And I'm getting grief for it, and the agent's making sure it has to be headline and Damnation. And then I see that same band showing up midway up the bill on the fourth stage. Sometimes between below bands that I wouldn't even fucking book for Damnation. I'm like, it doesn't mean that much. I mean, just to say you were on the poster with Metallica it, from from a promotional point. I mean, I get it. Playing down Download must be special, but also the, the, the fourth tent is only a couple of thousand as well. There's no production in it. There's no, I mean, it's, we talked earlier about how good the lineup is in there, but you're getting a better production at Damnation than you are in the fourth tent at, at Download. So what's your feelings in that when you look at them saying, is it just worth being in that poster with Iron Maiden? That's it. It can, I have had a band who I, I don't think would have played Download before. And they said, we'll play, we want to play it just because Iron Maiden's playing on the bill and we want to watch them. So they just wanted free tickets to the festival. <laughs> but I think that you look at, um, say we use Exodus, as an example, they had downloaded a few years ago. And an artist that far into their career that haven't played download in, let's say 10 years. Yeah. Where they're looking at is that people may not have the money. Like if you're a new band, it's, then people will be excited and come to your shows. But if you've been around 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, your fans might be a bit older. And every time you come through the UK, they'll say, oh, I'll get them next time. I'm yeah. a fan, but I know the songs. I'll see you next time. So a band like Exodus or Obituary or whoever else we're talking about in that instance 
can see download as the thing of those people have already paid their money. They're here to see Metallica, Iron Maiden, whoever else. They know our band. They're going to swing past the tent and watch us. So it's a, a chance to recapture some of those fans and you might see a bump in your headline sales on the back of those sorts of appearances. Yep. Okay. Well, that makes, that makes sense as well. The, I mean, the reason I was bringing up that whole promoter um, agent relationship as well, because then when I look at your roster yesterday and I'm going through, I'm like, fuck me. I never knew that sleep were here. I mean, we'd, we've discussed Exodus before, never made Amber. I'm looking at some of the bands going, whoa, Daughters, Sleep, on high, I've had High and Fire before, but not through you. Like, we've got a decent relationship here. We are chatting in this podcast. Like, so is that now we look next year, the year after? Like, now can we get sleep across? What's the, what's the deal with some of these bands? I think it's a lot of those bands, it depends on their cycle. You know, sleep are currently on hiatus. And, you know, again, they might, if they were to tour again, give me a very specific either window to work with or length of tour. Yep. And that's, you have to then maximize that period. So it's, you know, I've had this discussion with um, James Mark Tangent because um, there's one band that if they reunite, I really think would suit his festival. But it's kind of one of those things where we've put that on the, you know, on the agenda. Like, let's just, it might happen one year. Let's just wait and see. Um, but so that's one I've actually targeted because it's the perfect audience for them. Yeah. But the other stuff, it just depends. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm looking at down here, like between the buried and me, I think that, I mean, the challenge is that their songs are so long for the most part. So they might get a set where they play three songs, but at the same time, I do believe, you know, based on your booking history, they would work. They would uh, it's work. just one of those ones. And I, it's, un, you know, again, it comes back to the fees that for me to make it work, it needs to be on a tour. Yeah. So that's kind of an institute, the global touring plan, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, once it's, I, I guess there's some festivals in, in Europe where it's, I guess this is on the other side, I will pitch 90 artists to, and I, or even if I send 90 emails, if I get one reply, I count myself lucky. So it's one of those things where- <laughs> I was gonna ask that. I was going to ask that, like, if you flip the coin, as um, places that you look at it make complete sense and you're just, you, you either can't crack it or the opposite, that you do know the promoter, the promoter and you just can't get on for whatever reason. He's an arrogant prick and he just doesn't like to deal with you or that's why, I get I get a very cheery Tom Taft, but there's a, there's a promoter <laughs> in Belgium or fucking Sweden that gets a very angry Tom Taft. Yeah, well, that's where the, the poor... Yeah, the poor, poor promoters will tell you that. They've unfortunately been victim to that. I think it's, I think, it, look, it comes down to, I, this is what I said before about if you're a festival, if you're a festival booker who knows your festival inside out, and I will be, I either, either feel strongly that my band should be on the bill because they suit, and I'll give you 10 reasons why. And if you just come back and say, I don't agree, it's really frustrating because I can see how perfect it'll be, but no one else can see it. So that's obviously one frustration. But at the same time, you know, when I first pitched um, Daughters to Roadburn, they weren't convinced. It took a little bit of convincing to, to get them on the bill. And 
I mean, not only my opinion, but a few other people that weekend felt that the band was one of the standout bands of the festival. Yeah. So it's kind of, I wouldn't say like, there are promoters, like I, and, and especially some in the indie music vein as well, where it's, I, again, I just don't hear back from. But when I do, it's great, because I take it that the promoter believes that the artist will do well. Yeah. Whereas, you know, again, like some promoters with relationships, they'll throw you a, a favor here and there. But it's, um, it's one of those things, like favors are fine, but at some point they run out. Yeah. And it's kind of smoke and mirrors to the band that if a band isn't worth a main stage at download opening slot, but the promoter's done me a favor, in the long run, it can hurt me because the band will be like, well, we played main stage last year, why can't we do it again? Yeah. And yeah. it, you can't explain that it's a favor and well, it doesn't always go down that well that it's a favor because yeah. every band wants to, I you know, rightly so think it's their great songs that have got them there. Yeah. So you kind of need to um, earn your stripes, I guess. And, and I'm sure there's going to be artists where I'll say to you, you know, you should book them, but they have to headline. And I mean, we use, if I say they have to headline, I don't care about your restrictions. You have to, have all this production and <laughs> it'll be this you know you say we just it's this is the stage yeah that's what it is yeah um and who compromises does it work uh i i think that um i did listen to the hayden episode and and he was talking about some artists who um i can't remember which one that, that they have to play at night I'm and I, yeah, yeah and I, I that's just they have a vision for how they want to have been um they probably have the best results from that. So I kind of, I, I don't think it's always as simple as going back to something you said before of like a, a wedding covers band. This is the fee. I'll book them. Thanks. Yes. It's, it could be anything. Yeah. And you know, there are, there are some festivals who you want to play that badly because of what it helps you with in other areas that you will take a lower fee to make it work. Yeah. And that's, that happens hopefully not regularly, but it has happened. And it's trying to just get the right sort of, um, I mean, for example, on our um, Paul Bear and Iris, I mean, maybe it's just how we operated, but there was very little negotiation there. It was, here's the quote, here's why I believe that. You've come back saying, this is why I disagree. There's the fees. Great. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's exactly. No, no, it was good about that as well, because when in that Hayden uh, interview, we had that whole thing about building a package. And the, uh, the point I made to Hayden is like a promoter will be like, right, a five grand or 10 grand or 20 grand or one grand is, is the fee that I've got. How you get the package to the promoter really isn't the promoter's business. The promoter's like, I just want to pay the fee for. So when people come back and go, oh, shit, I've got this new band on and they also need fucking another 500 pound or a grand or whatever, then the promoter's be like, you sold me this package and now you're, you're changing the goalposts, but. But my, my, the problem with that is also when the package gets worse, I've been stung. Or oh, here's, here's Mayhem with McGlaw and Absu, and I'm like, fucking hell, that's an amazing package. And then the two supports fall off, and you get hit with two of Mayhem's girlfriends that are coming to play and support. Like, but they still want to save money. And you're like, fuck, how did, I've been stung a couple of times with that. So it, it's like when we done what happened with the, the tour that you're talking about, it all made sense. And you're a bit like, right, okay, well, here's how we're going to restructure this. And if you can get this extra, 
we can make this band come in and this is why this makes sense. And that's that is common sense, especially for a festival like, okay, this band we're gonna announce they're, they're fantastic. They're gonna add ticket sales to damnation, they're gonna add depth to the festival. It's gonna be great, but I sometimes you get the the vice versa version of that when you've not when I've naively not got the payment for each band in the bill when the supports fall off that you were promised these crap bands show up and then you're left with, well, you can't pull the, the band that you've booked, the headline band, off the poster. So you're a bit, you're a bit stuck, aren't you? I mean, I, would, I think, I, can't, I, I don't think in this instance we had it, but I have had it where a festival say, you represent the three or four bands, here's the figure, you figure it out. And I hate that because it's, there has to be a level of transparency yeah. where the promoter is telling me this for this band, this for this band, this for this band. Because what you don't want to do is have any doubt whatsoever that I wouldn't want anyone to doubt that I was playing favorites. Yeah. The festival, it's their money. They dictate what band gets each fee. That's, or, and even if you say that's the package bill, you figure out the split. I'll always come back with them and say, fine, but can you tell me within that package what you value each band at? Yeah. So at least there is proof that what I am passing on is what you see it as as well. And it's not down to me trying to, you know, figure I, it out. You're good. You're a good friend with a basis in the headline band. So you're a bit like me. I'll get you an extra <laughs> 400 quid. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm sure it does happen. And for me, I speak from the fear of what you don't want is the band playing a shitty show on a Tuesday night going, what the fuck is our agent doing? You, it, the communication and transparency will preserve the relationships. Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, when I, I, there are artists in my roster I'm not the first agent for, and you never really hear what the reasons are. I've been let go on artists simply because, quote unquote, we fancy a change. Yeah. And you feel pretty ripped off when you hear that. But it, it goes around sort of thing. You know, you get some, you lose some. That's fine, um, and and I do think that there there's sometimes a point where perhaps the artist just gets maybe too comfortable with hearing the same voice. Perhaps on the other hand, the agent just gets lazy or complacent. It's, you never really know. But at the same time, I think that more often than not, when the when there's a breakdown in communication, that's when an agent's most vulnerable. I so, still. Is there, um, is there a degree of poaching at all? Or is that just a Hollywood storyline for sports agents? I think it happens. Um, the, in, the, in the rock world, it's a, bit, it's a bit of a weird one because, because we work so heavily in the packaging side of things. You know, there are other agents that I work with closely and I wouldn't dream of approaching their band because it, it's just making life harder for yourself. Yeah. There are instances where I, and it depends on my relationship with the agent, where one of their artists has approached me and said, hey, we're going to part ways with our agent. Are you interested? And you, you know, immediately say, you have to part ways with your agent before we can even have a discussion. Okay. And in three or four instances off the top of my head, I've called that agent first and said, just so you know, they've asked me to have a call just want to you know i don't want problems between us yeah um i've had that in return as well and um 
it's just one of those things where it, it kind of, I think how you carry yourself will. It must be the same as promoting. I mean, like you screw over a, you screw over a, somebody's band and you don't think that that's going to go for the rest <laughs> of the agents, the rest of the bands, the rest of the labels. I mean, Damnation's made a lot of mistakes down the years, but we've never screwed anyone, ever. When you say about um, new promoters or new festivals or new, for the sake of argument, let's say new promoters, they might feel aggrieved that, hey, I've put a really good fee in for this band in Oxford, all right? Why can't I get this band? And the, I mean, I, again, I don't know how North American touring works that well, but even slightly, there's a little bit more of a who, who offers the most money can sometimes take an act. Right. Whereas in Europe, it's very traditional where if this promoter's done the first London show, unless they, it's very rare they'll lose the act, unless they rip the band off, lie, get lazy, do a terrible job. You know, it's very, um, you know, the handful of promoters, like, you know, I can think with say, every time I die has been promoted by the same person for 10 years in London. Really? And that goes the same with, um, you know, Glasgow, where I've had promoters who have started out with a band in front of 12 people who aren't, you know, it is their hobby. They work in a factory during the day yeah. and they then take it up to Barrowlands in 1900 people and they carry on with the band because it's, they've shown they can do it every step of the way. They've never done a bad thing. Um, and it's, so for someone then to come in and just say, I'll pay a fee, I'll book them, thanks. Yeah. Usually my response would be, we've got a promoter there. See, see and we, my, I've never taken this too personally. Again, goes back to the fact that I've only ever dipped my toe in and out, but I was the first guy to bring Nathrak to Glasgow. I was the first guy to, well, not the first guy to bring Electric Wizard to Glasgow, but I put Electric Wizard on in Glasgow the last time they, they'd done their own headline show. And what I found with Electric Wizard, because I'd been interested in that again, is Live Nation sort of owned them. So then it was right. a case of, you're going to do a download and then we're going to do your full tour. So when you go back to Scotland or Glasgow in particular, there wouldn't be an option for Damnation to put that show on in Glasgow because now you're owned, not owned by, but you're signed into some sort of agreement or gentleman's agreement that you're now going to, your show in Glasgow is going to be promoted by Live Nation. And as I say, I never took it too personally because I've never been one of those guys who built the band up for 12 fans to the battle land. So I, I, I never get worked up about it. But is that... Do you, you find yourself in that situation where sometimes you get a band who then get that huge slot on the main stage, but with it comes the catch that then their next tour is going to be Live Nation? Yeah, I mean, I've been in that situation before. And um, I mean, it's quite easy because Live Nation's logos on the artwork and it's easy to make them the bad guy. When, it's, <laughs> when the ultimate thing is, it's the artist, the manager, the agent can say no. And you don't know behind the scenes the agent might have approached Live Nation for the deal, you know, and come offering all this stuff. You never quite know what really happens. Um, it might be a case where um, the agent representing the band wants a certain level of fee or slot at a festival. And, you know, it has to be, from a festival's point of view, if you're a touring promoter as well as a festival, if you're offering your greatest 
prize or whatever you've got to offer, you've got to get something back for it. And if you're paying more than the artist is worth, there has to be a way they recoup that money. And, and I've had it before where it's, and this is where I, I feel bad sometimes because I've talked before about when you would change promoters and there are promoters who out there who have done amazing jobs, but there's a change in management, a change in band management. And they'll be like, don't care about, you know, an American manager might, you know, I've had this date why I'm referencing it. Don't care about, you know, Jimbo in Manchester and whoever in Bristol, sell it to this one promoter for the whole country. This is the fee we need, figure it out. Yeah. And as the agent, you can kind of go back and explain why you think that's a bad idea. But at the same time, it's, I always say this to us, like, you don't work for me. I work for the band. So I can explain stuff and give them reasons why I think it's a bad idea. Yeah. But at the same time, they're, if they still disagree and tell me what they want, that's the job. And I think that's kind of, it's, it's one of those things where I think that it's, it's challenging for um, independent promoters all across, in this, this goes for the world, but you know, for the sake of this discussion in the UK, where you work with a band from very small capacities and you take probably the greatest risk on 12 people coming or 50 people coming. You do want to be in for the ride for the longer haul. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, most agents <laughs> would prefer that to be the case. Um, at the same time, others just, you know. Right. Don't yeah, I suppose care. what you're going to do, because ultimately they're going to go, right, you know, like, you can fight the good fight, can't you? You can fight the good fight. Unless we should go back to Mark Miller or Jonathan Albin, Triple G in Glasgow. These guys have, these guys have brought us up and, and took the risk when it was 12 people, Ivory Blacks and audio. And now they're due to play the academy or the Badlands, and now you're fucking them over because yeah. now, now yeah. the money's now the money's available and Live Nation have won you. Tom, I've done sixteen of these. Uh, I've never asked for a low break. Then before we started, you mentioned a low break, and I'm like, shit, I need that. <laughs> I've had two cans, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hit pause and I'm gonna be back in two minutes. All right, good man. Are you sinking your low break? Do you need the low break? Yeah, why not? We'll oh, let's go for it then. Cheers, big man. And we are back. <laughs> Cheers for that. Cheers for that. <laughs> uh, the, I, I really, man, you said it never happened. I know. I know. I was like, oh, come on, Tom, man. You've got a child's bladder. <laughs> Do you know how many of these I've sat through drinking cans and I was getting like, oh, shit, I'm actually going to need to. Because I, I would have just said, let's wrap this up and let you go. But this has been fucking brilliant, mate. Honestly, Thanks, I've really... Man. I've really enjoyed um, how candid you've been with the answers as well. So uh, that let's let's tap back into that whole relationship with the agent to the bands. Now you've you've referenced that tangent a couple of times. Mm -hmm. I love the festival. I, I know James quite well. He's talked about the the bands he books and, and trying to get sleep and all that kind of jazz. The he made when I was talking to him on the podcast about that whole relationship between a promoter and agent. He said he, he had a friend. He felt it was a friend as an agent. And then the fucking agent went taunt to him about something that he felt he couldn't control. And he made the point that the agent's the only guy in the, the process, really, that doesn't have that protection, doesn't have the contract. Like, as you say, you get sent a fucking email where it just says, we fancy a change. A 
and you've put five, ten years into a band and they're gone. So it's easy to see why you, an agent could be highly strong about a situation when they're trying to hold on to the living. So how do you how do you balance that? I I mean I don't. Well, I, I think there are times as I um, as I get as I've got older as an agent, the approach changes. I mean, I early on when you are um, arrogant and you know whether it's confident or you know bravado, whatever it ends up being, you you might kind of see a band that you want and go, yeah, I want to get them. They've got an agent. And then as you get older, um, you kind of see, if that happened to you, you see how it feels as well. So artists are going to change agents no matter what happens. Um, it's just, and you'd be an idiot to think that it's not always an agent chasing after your artist. It could be that the artist isn't happy and you don't know about it. Um, and it's all that sort of stuff. So I, I don't, it's not that I fear that my artists are upset. If, if they're not happy with the job I've done, then I wouldn't blame them for looking elsewhere. At the same time, all I can do about that is do what I believe is the best job. And I think there, there, there are instances where I have, an artist has moved to me, and I've had this in return as well, but an artist has moved to me, and I look at the job their previous agent has done, and I'm actually going, I can't find a fault in this. I think you've done a good job. Yeah. So it's, I just, I, you know, I chalk it up to just life isn't fair. Um, you know, I think that the non no contracts thing between an agent and an artist, I hope never changes because I don't want an artist to work with me that doesn't enjoy me working for them. Yeah. You know, it's, it, I want them to say, you know, our agent does a good job. That's it. Um, the second they don't think that way, I would rather they leave. Yeah. Um, at the same time, if an artist, you know, again, like it's like any job, you know, you want to be not thanked for everything you do, simply respected and treated respectfully. Yeah. Um, so if an artist does get carried away, I have the ability to walk away. Yeah, and that's no, kind I, of a, I, I, I see that from that promoter side of the fence as well. Like if I had an artist that was contracted to come and play Damnation and they just had to do it, I'd be a bit like, I'd be a bit of kick the stones as well. But it's dealing with Damnation and the context of what it is, 27 bands arriving from all over the world into a maze and leads and backline and tour managers know I mean it's enough of a stress with bands being there who don't even want to play the festival you know what I mean so I, I could see exactly how you'd feel that way if you had a band on board who were just like uh, we don't trust you as an agent and we don't respect you so no, that's a that's a, that's an interesting way to put it so let's talk I went as I say I went through your roster one of the bands that, that, that stuck out that I wanted to question was Vane now yeah. they were a they were, they were one of those bands, again, talk about riding that crest of wave. I don't know if they came across to the UK. Did they play, was that a hardcore film? It was called Outbreak or one of these, and absolutely, see what happens when a band does so well at an event that you start hearing about at other events, like, fuck, have you heard of this band Vane? Have you heard of this band Vane? That's what happens, let's say it was three years ago, and then I went to see them in Glasgow. And it was a decent show, but kind of showed up on the stage late, and they played for... 25, 30 minutes and they kind of fucked off and then I heard from a, a friend at a magazine that they were wanting to do a big sort of like this is the next big thing and they couldn't really even get a call back for the, for the band 
when this was like a major magazine, I'm not talking about like some bitty uh, fanzine. And it just seemed like they got us me back reputation that they didn't really give a fuck. You know what I mean? So is what, what, what's, this, what's the situation with Vane and why aren't they why aren't they fucking, I don't know, hate breed already? I think that I mean I I they're one of those but I think I chased them. Um their their American agent was very helpful um in, in trying to facilitate what they didn't have an agent over here. And I maybe chased them for on and off for about a year, maybe 18 months. Right. And I don't think I got a reply to 90% of the emails, maybe. And I don't want to exaggerate, but it, it felt like that anyway. And, um, you know, I guess it's one of those ones where they're just doing the sort of music they're doing. And I, I haven't ever spoken about this, so I, I'm generalizing, but it might not be a full-time job. It might just be they are just doing it for fun. Yeah. So they don't always want to play the industry game. Um, and, and I guess, like, when they did come across, they toured with another one of my clients called Higher Power. Yeah. And uh, the band's got along like a house on fire. And I saw the London show. And um, I mean, for me, it was, it was one of those electric moments like nails. Like it, I genuinely felt someone was gonna get hurt in the audience because it was so intense. Like the, the crowd was intense. The be- it, was, it was one of the best shows I've ever seen. And, um, and it felt great. And I think that, you know, like we talked about nails, the hit and miss shows where one can be amazing and one yeah. may not be. Just, just uh, but I'm sorry, just about the Glasgow show wasn't bad. The Glasgow show was excellent. What I'm saying is like, they just, when I say could it be fucked, it was like, they could be fucking <laughs> getting onto stage. They could be, it was like, it's like they just committed to a bus and they're saying pants. It was like, but right. when they start, what they do is phenomenal. When you actually see them, there's, there's, a, there's a spark about them that, that, you could see why people are saying, holy fuck, this band are the ones that are going to make. So I'm not, I'm not having a dig at Vane. What I'm saying is like, it's another one of this, is this a new nail? So you're like, you've got, you've got a bit of like lightning in a bottle, but how the fuck do you make it work for the band and you? I mean, I, they're one of those ones where I, we had touring in the works, which has been, um, I mean, they were announced on Outbreak 2020. Or maybe 21. They're announced on Outbreak 21 as well, even. Um, and, you know, that's a great festival that has gone. I mean, the next edition, I think, is 4,000 people. And really? for um, a lot of people may not be so aware of the specifics about it, but it's kind of just grown very steadily. Um, people travel from all around the UK for it. And I think that, you know, as I, I mean, I've only met the Vane guys a few times, so you can't kind of profess to know everything about them, but they do take their craft very seriously. And they're not saying as if like, we're going to be the biggest band on the planet. They're saying our next record's going to be our best work. And I think that's kind of the approach there. You see that in some of their contemporaries, um, particularly coming out of America, where they really want to push the the envelope on what they're doing, and I I, I would be very confident. Um, you know, we'll see, but I, I'm I'm very confident whenever the next record's ready that um, they're they're going to be definitely a lot bigger. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean that's the I think good. I mean that's one of the bands I do want at Damnation. I think I asked you about it one right. day. We just it never it never synced up for whatever reason, but there's. 
sometimes you see something you're like, right, okay, good. Let's say let's let's get a bit of that and good. Well, I hope that I hope that does happen. Let's talk about a couple of your because you've got like we've mentioned sleep and ecstasy and sort of these guys. And then we're going to talk about these weird artists you've got. Joyce, what's his name? Grand <laughs> Joy. Wait, yeah. ten million fucking Spotify listeners a month. But you've also got Love and Higher Power. So the, those guys seem to be the next generation of UK metal. And that's obviously something I'm very interested in because I, I need the next generation of UK metal come up to sustain damnation. So we're no continually asking Carcass to keep coming back fucking headlining. So but how do you come about those bands? Is this, is this again, eight the four stuff, getting into venues when there's 15 people or does that get recommended? T- tell me a wee bit about both those bands, Love and Higher Power. Um. I mean, Lothe I wasn't the first agent for. Um, I, it's, it's circumstances. I, um, Lothe are managed by someone that I've known for a long time. And uh, Ryan used to play in Funeral for a Friend, who's the manager of Lothe. Uh, I was the agent for Funeral for a Friend for a long time, although he wasn't in the band when I was the agent for them. Uh, and, and he gave me a call and they wanted, you know, he knew me already and the band didn't. We started working together and, you know, it's a shame for them because, I mean, they put out, I don't even think it's one of the best British release. I think, I mean, they're one of those bands that the emails we get from Asia, Europe, America, and the press they get out of America, the fact that Chino from Deftones keeps tweeting about them, like that record was one of the best records of 2020 and it came out early and, you know, I think we did the album tour in, uh, I think it was February 2020. Yeah. And that was it. That's the cycle done. So I think that it's only getting bigger for them. Um, they are, I mean, some of the most polite, nice guys you'll ever meet. And I think the fact that when you've got, it's always good when you can see the bigger British artists, you know, such as uh, While She Sleeps, such as every um, Architects. They're all, they know who High Power and Lowe's are, for example, and, and that sort of stuff. So they're very smart to be what's coming through and what makes sense. And um, so, I mean, I, that was one where I can't profess to uh, having done the work in the early days. I did have them support uh, Berry Tomorrow on a tour of the UK early on. So I did see them there. And, and at the time I was blown away by how good they were, but this was an instance where they had an agent. So that was that. Yeah. Um, and whereas Higher Power, I, I am the first agent for, um, and that, uh, I was the agent for a, a, a hardcore band called Turnstile yeah. for a while. And, and I, and this was one where I got let go because they fancied a change. And I was a bit, you know, down in the dumps because such a phenomenal band and, and I got along really well with their manager and, um, just disappointed because when you lose a band that you think's amazing, it, it's a, it's a downer, I guess. But, um, one of my colleagues, shortly after said you should speak to this manager he's got this new band that you might really like and you know spoke to the manager and heard the music and i just think that it's it's evolving that's for sure um, i i loved what i first heard but you know the more melodic songs in their last record you know for what is a hardcore band really at its core some of the more melodic songs on the last record i mean they start channeling stuff like alice in chains and that and it's kind of not entirely, but you can see yeah. there's nods too. And um, 
and higher power, I mean, they're, they're amazing guys, but they're one of those bands as well where I feel that they're championed by a lot of the American bands as well. So it's kind of, um, they've put the time in on the road in America, that's for sure. But they're one of those bands that I think will always get offered support tours, um, whether that be that people love their music or love hanging around with them, that sort right. of thing. Right, okay, <laughs> good. Well, listen, I'll, 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 I'm desperate. This podcast is going to, um, it's going to show the light in some of the things that I never really thought about, even with Damnation, just the, the difficulties that the festival has for new talent to come up and headline an event like Damnation, one of those sort of middle grounds. Not a band that needs to necessarily sell 3,000 tickets, but a band that could sell 1,000 tickets could headline Damnation because everything else packaged in a bit, it makes it the 3,000, 3,500. So the, I, I hope bands like Higher Power and Love that really break through and, and we see more employed to sales and Venom Prisons and Conjurers because we need them. And especially this Brexit nonsense. I mean, fucking, I, I, I'm trying to dig, I'm trying to bury my head in the sand with this visa shit and what might it cost and can you get a band that's going to cost you £400 from Holland or Spain now because actually it's going to cost you £1,400 because you need to fucking get five visas for the, the guys, you know what I mean? So, God, I'm desperate for, um, for some real good UK talent to bust through and, uh, and be yeah, able to play that. It's a challenge because, I mean, if you look back at old gig posters and you see towns and, well, leave venues out, just towns. If you look at some old um, NME or Kerrangs or whatever, and there's Exeter, there's Reading, there's Oxford, there's... And now, it's, you don't see anywhere near that. But I think that there's a responsibility... Well, it's never a one-way street. But you'll have... Sometimes there's like a, a moment where there's a promoter in a certain city or town who has managed to create something and everyone will then take advantage. Whether, you know, whether it be Oxford or whether it be um, Sheffield or... You know, there's a promoter I've, I've put a sh few shows to recently in Blackpool. And it's kind of like, he's got something cool going on. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and Banquet Records did that in Kingston of all places. And there's all these little pockets where if you can create um, some great, I mean, we've had some of Every Time I Die's most memorable shows have been in Aberdeen. Yeah. And it's kind of, they'll play a small venue there with the same promoter, you know, every time. And it's just, we do it because the band love it. You know, everything. it's not the most, it, it's not poorly paying, but it's not the highest paying show at all. But yeah. it's just always worked for them. And I think that um, definitely with some of these, you know, I've done it with, um, with Barry Tomorrow and I've done it with While She Sleeps, where we've played some, I mean, we did a tour with While She Sleeps where they, uh, the band promoted the shows themselves, um, but it had to hit uh, a form of their logo on the map of the UK. So I was calling pubs in the town that they wanted to play saying, do you have bands? So, I mean, there's one show, I can't remember the town, it was in Kent where um, the guy didn't have an email address. He just said, <laughs> I said, well, what's your name? Mick, how do I get in contact? We'll just call this number and ask for Mick. And it was a case of, have you got a stage? Have you got a PA? And he's like, yeah, we've got, we've got covers bands all the time. And yeah. <laughs> Until the band did say, like, yeah, that show was a bit ropey, but at the same time, it was an exercise in 
let's go and play some places. And, yeah, um, that, that, is, that is possibly one of the best stories I've heard on here. So, I mean, well, I mean, how many tickets can Welsh Sleep sell in London? Their last show um, to wrap the last album was, oh no, to, well, it was, what was it, January? January 2020, and they sold out Brixton Academy. Yeah. That was 4,900 tickets. <laughs> and, uh, you're, and you're phoning Mick and Carlisle. <laughs> Hear me, you happen to be in the middle <laughs> of the S, so I need a pub with a fucking... <laughs> but it's, it's also, that, you know, that's the sort of band where we, um, you know, they, uh, they rehearsed for a period. Uh, I don't want to get it confused. There was two shows, one in Chesterfield and one in Scunthorpe. And I think one of those venues or things, they rehearsed there for a while and they wanted to give something back. Uh, and to, to that owner to have a, a sweaty show of sold out people, that's a decent bar take for a night. Yeah. So there's all these things that, um, these venues do exist around the UK, that's for sure. I mean, I'm trying to, was it maybe Let Live we did in, um, down in Truro, down the Southwest. I think it was like a hundred people or something. And yeah. So there's different reasons for it all, but I would say that, um, you know, take away all my anger and frustration and whatnot about Brexit. Um, I mean, I think that it would be great for, um, you know, I, I say this to all my British artists, you know, let's have more bands. If you, you see what the Stranglers do, like almost like a once a year tour where they play what feels like 30 dates around the UK. Yeah, an actual tour. Well, I mean, an yeah. actual, an actual tour. Like it's, it's, and it, like I'm quite proud of the Glasgow scene. I'm quite proud that Glasgow because it takes money to get up into Scotland. I mean, it's like you need to then go fuck it. We're going for Leeds all the way to Scotland rather than just fucking off back into London and into into Europe. So I'm proud of the the, the, the Triple Gs and the, the guys up here have managed to to build. A scene that we can get, and I, when I grew up, man, I was able to go and see Charger and Major Speed Tom and American <laughs> Head Charge at these gigs. It was because these guys had built that scene. And don't get me wrong, Glasgow is a big city. I'm not pretending it's a village, but it saddens me that our capital, Edinburgh, can't manage a fucking gig. You know what I mean, it's like, and that's not by accident. That's just because there's not nothing's been built there. Nothing's nothing's been cultivated so what you've got that poor lassie that tried to do heavy Scotland they are completely fucked that and you're like yeah. it's it, you're in Scotland you've got one city in Ireland I was talking to Ireland for Primordial and I felt like Ireland was the same it's like you've got Dublin okay you could go out Northern and maybe do Belfast as well but you've got Dublin I mean Ireland's a fucking five million people there six million people in Ireland yeah. and you can't get a second show you can't get a second show you know what I mean and he said even the shows in Dublin are, I mean, if it wasn't for Fergal Holmes, there was fucking, there was nothing really happening in Dublin at all. So it's a bit, I, I mean, if, I never thought about the positive, I never thought about any positives about Brexit, but the if it is that we start to cultivate and rebuild that, as you say, the enemy tours, where you're getting into Edinburgh and Oxford and fucking Chesterfield or whatever, and the bands can start to make a living for that rather than coming in and doing, I mean, what the agents call it is like an A route. Do you just call it like a bit, in some ways, I think that's a bit disrespectful to some cities because it's just in terms of if you think you had a compass, how many like America, I think you could probably, if you're an American band or if you're a band visiting America, you could potentially 
do three or four laps of the country, not play the same cities on an album cycle and, and hit everyone. I think that with the costs of pop, I mean, I, I say that because we don't know yet exactly what the costs are going to be, but if you're an American or European band, if you're paying whatever that cost is to get into the UK, you need to make it worth your while. You, one London show, you'll probably just choose not to play London. And I mean, I've had some artists where um, they might be a bit further into their career and it might not be a full-time job anymore. And instead of going all the way up to Stockholm, they'll say, let's play Berlin and our four diehard fans in Stockholm can just fly to Berlin. And so it might be a case of some of the more niche metal acts may not play the UK and simply fans will have to fly out to see them. It might be a case of they have to come in and play more shows. Uh, I mean, for a festival's point of view, um, you know, Damnation may benefit a little bit more than some others because it's typically going to be part of a tour anyway. I mean, obviously you're going to have a, how many bands you say, like 27? 27. Um, when, you've, <laughs> when you've got 27 bands all trying to play London the same week, that's going to be a challenge. Um, not your problem though. <laughs> but it's just one of those things where it's, I, I think that it's worth cultivating um, the scene here a bit more. And, you know, again, uh, as I, in my mind, think some, some of the best shows um, I've had, whether it be Every Time I Die or Madball or whoever, like, Oh, Bouncing Souls, you know, Huddersfield, the parish there does great shows. You know, there's all these little pockets where um, I can't, sometimes I want to put more shows on, I just don't have the time. Yeah. So it's kind of just... I've got, friends, I've got friends in Halifax who are gig daft, but I think they've just become accustomed to, if they do a show, they're going to be in Leeds or Manchester. And that's it. Like, yeah. whatever... Whatever gigs used to happen in Halifax just don't happen in Halifax. So they go, but maybe 20 years ago, gigs did happen in Halifax. I, I looked at Wolverhampton, even in, two, I don't know what year it was, but there was a year where it felt, well, up until maybe, I don't know, 2012, uh, it felt like Wolverhampton was getting all the big, you know, the Corns, the Rob Zombies, the yep. whoever else. And... I mean, there's some great rooms there, but it feels like in the last few years, that's just stopped. Yeah. And it's, it's Nottingham or it's Birmingham. That's, uh, it's pretty sad when you think about it. Okay, well, like, I'm gonna, this is my last metal question, and then I'm gonna talk, I just then I'll have a final question about your, <laughs> your uh, crazy other bands. The, um, so how is the scene in the UK as it stands right now for an agent who is quite well versed in how it is across Europe? I've, I've done 16 of these interviews, the general consensus is when bands tour, America is pretty fucking terrible. Europe is pretty good. UK is somewhere in between, and Japan's the greatest thing that ever happened. So, <laughs> how, how how do you see it? I mean, that gap, especially between Europe and actually the UK. I don't. I mean, are we talking like just how the bands are treated? How the bands are treated, how um, fees, just like Hayden made the point that sometimes, I mean, even 10 years ago, bands would say, fuck the UK, let's just go and do London and get back out because we don't get the riders there. It's a struggle for the fees. We're not treated the way we need to be in that. It's, it's things a wee bit for me because I'm a bit like, well, I've been part of that problem. You know, it's like damnation is 
damnation is that, but I feel like coming here and I think, oh, we get treated so much better at Amplifest and AM Fest and Roadburn and everybody else. Like, I mean, there's no reason why you should be treated better at Roadburn than you should be at Damnation. I mean, it, no, yeah. Roadburn's got a much bigger reputation, but it's a similar size festival done one day against four days. So it kind of stung me a wee bit, like, oh, right, I never realised that that was the case. So it'd be interesting to get your point of view on it. I mean, I think it varies. I think it doesn't matter on age or experience. I have artists who would rather, I mean, because in Europe, a lot of the venues will have an in-house kitchen. So in Italy and, and some of the, it, there's, or Germany, it's also possibly tied in, in some venues through the unions and stuff. So the catering cost is a fixed cost, whether you like it or not. Whereas in the UK, I'll have artists who will simply say, we just, what's the catering budget? Just give it to us in cash and we can go to a restaurant. And whether it be, tell the promoter, ask the promoter the nearest, vegan thai whatever it is recommendation and it's that stuff it's it's all a lot of bands love nando's you know and it's it's just they don't need endless platters of cheese and meat and whatever they just want a nice meal yeah um and so i, I think it can vary i mean you've got some artists who will want you know just try and take the piss with bottles of vodka and all that and that's it's down to the promoter to say no really and and it's Ultimately, a good tour manager will always say, guys, this is your money. So you may as well just pop to the shop yourself and get a bottle if you really want it that bad. Um, but it, it really depends on each band. But getting back to the overall question, I, I don't think that, I mean, there's particular city, or there's particular venues in Europe that I think are amazing. And I, I think you go to some of the um, particularly Danish and Belgian and Dutch and German venues. And it's just mind boggling how perfect they are yeah. in terms of the load-in's amazing. I mean, there's a venue in, um, in Linz in Austria where um, the, the, I had the crew just raving about it because it was basically the stage was on hydraulics. So it comes down, you back the truck up, flat load, and then the stage goes up. I, and they were just raving about it. And, and compare that to the Barrowlands in Glasgow, which is up a steep flight <laughs> of stairs. But, you know, again, for, for that exact, I mean, for a 1900 capacity venue, I don't think you'll get a better venue in the world than Barrowlands. Um, I'm not sure if it's the, the sprung floor or what a sold out night there. There's something about that venue that, you can't build that. It, it just is what it is. And, and so I, I take it you've been then to see it, to experience it. I mean, it, it's such a fucking shithole. You know what I mean? It's like they won't, they will not touch those green stars and then they will not repaint the place. It, it is left. If you were in a time capsule, the Barrowlands is how it would have been 40 years ago. I mean, nothing. I don't want it to change. I think <laughs> nothing gets touched. I, I, that they're buying cans of beer at the back of the room and <laughs> everything about it just makes for um, a, an enjoyable night. I so know. I think it, it really, I think, does depend on the venues um, and knowing what you get yourself in for. And there's, it's, it's one of those ones where it doesn't have to be the cleanest, you know, some of the most basic venues are the, are the most enjoyable to have shows at. So I think that, um, you know, of course that you go to, I've had shows in Spain, Portugal, wherever, where there's problems. I don't think it's UK specific. I think that there's um, 
certain promoters who I know will always go above and beyond to treat the band well, or at least be, you know, you do get good feedback from that promoter all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's those sort of things, but I think like, I'm not from the UK, so I, can, I feel I can kind of talk a bit of shit about it if, if needed. But I think that there's that old nonsense about British food being crap or whatever. And I personally don't see that. I don't see that. Yeah. And I think that it's, um, it might have been a historic thing talking about British venues not being as good. But for everyone that would say that to me now, I could point out a European venue that's just as bad. Yeah, but do you feel the same about from what you hear from your North American tours? When I had uh, Dennis from Ghostbath on, he felt that bands of that level were, they're, they're, like they're not actually professionals. They're just guys that are still showing up at karaoke nights. Do you, when you get, like you get Paul Berner across, did Paul Berner arrive in the UK and say, fuck me, man, we played in some shithole in Idaho when the, the PA, is it still quite bad across there? Is that also historical for what you know? I know you don't promote it, you don't actually represent there. I, think, I mean, I've heard, um, I've heard stories where you know, only the headliner gets a dressing room, everyone else just has to sit out front, you know, that sort of stuff. And yeah. um, I heard recently one of my bands who plays, you know, probably like, 2,000 tickets in New York, for example. I'm, I'm assuming that's not the same in Idaho and wherever else. But they genuinely wanted to put on their rider, um, or maybe they do, that they want to play venues where there's a working toilet backstage. And to me, that doesn't feel like a massive request. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, just, I, I think that, I'm sure, I look, I mean, from the American venues I've been to, um, and again, I haven't been to, I've been to probably like 0.1% of American cities when you really think about how big the country is. Um, but all the venues are great that I've seen, so yeah. I wouldn't take away from it. Yeah. I mean, when I was, across, I was in California and I saw that Machine Head tour with, uh, with Arch Enemy and they were playing fucking some room that was 900 capacity and then they came to Glasgow on the SECC. So when you're machine head <laughs> with Arch Enemy and you're playing somewhere there's maybe two dressing rooms, it's a, uh, I can only imagine how terrible it must be for um, for bands going across the track, track country. Now, listen, as I said, this has been great. I've loved this. The podcast is about this. See this idea of being about just, like, I don't want to come on here and just talk about stuff I already know and chatting to you for God knows how long this has been has been, there's been plenty that I've found out. So this is the last sort of question because these are the guys in your roster that I know fucking nothing about. I mean, I'm a Julian oh. Baker fan and uh, Vance Joy seems like he's got, as I say, 10 million fucking... How do you... So you represent Vance Joy. I take it that's again UK and Europe? Yes. Um, not for long. I've represented Vance since 2010. And his manager called me up. They were looking to make a change. Um, and the, the first time I ever met him was him selling out Alexandra Palace in London. <laughs> so not a bad thing to come into, but I've known his manager since we were maybe 15. Um, and his manager came up in the same sort of punk scene that I did. So it's... Um, that, that's kind of why, like, I mean, I'm not alone in the fact that I do, I do try and branch out 
and have a, I aspire to have a broad skill set. I'm far from achieving that, but I, it's definitely, I'm always looking to try and do something a bit. Now I'm not going to necessarily go and, you know, I'm not going to book hip hop stuff because I just don't know about hip hop. But at yeah. the same time, if an artist approached me, I'm willing to have a dig. You know, I can try some things here and there. Like, um, I'll give you an example. I work with an artist called Tommy Guerrero, who is a jazz musician and is an instrumental jazz musician. I don't know that much about jazz, um, but he comes from the skateboarding culture that I grew up um, really into. So I'm aware of his place in, um, in culture. And, and, you know, at his shows, there will be a mix of people that are into the general skateboarding culture that he comes from, as well as jazz. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, where do you, so you walk in and he's sold out or he's playing the Alexander Palace and then, right, okay, now you're the agent of this guy. I mean, I make a reference to the, the 10 million monthly followers because when we book big bands, I mean, you see Opeth and Mastodon and now we're seen as like big bands. And they're, they're like a fraction of that. So where, where, where do you start? And also, this is no longer download or Roadburn or fucking Vacan or Rock Amp. So now you're, is this what's, I don't even know the, the festivals that would be, I mean, in, in our country, maybe Leeds and Redden or Glastonbury, but in Europe, do you need to then go and build these relationships with festivals that otherwise you wouldn't have not known? And You've already, yeah. and you've got a roadmap of a complete, for all, for your every time I dies and your mad balls and you know exactly what's going on. You know who the Gavin, I mean, the Gavin McAnally of the indie world is some wee guy sitting in Belgium with his wee 3,000 capacity. <laughs> like, he's not booking uh, Vance Joy. So you had to then go and rebuild this. How, how, how did that happen? Well, it, it, I mean, obviously, it, the... the the sort of festivals where he'll be playing typically are ones that have a lot of genres playing. So there, there will be some sort of rock element at most of these festivals. Like a pickle pop, um, something like that. Yeah, I mean, even like Ross Kilda. You know, I've put um, Julian Baker on Ross Kilda. I've put Every Time I Die on there. Um, High and Fire I've booked there. You know, so it's kind of those things. I think we even put Nails on there, maybe. You know, there's kind of one of those things where it's it's a pretty small world. And I guess this where um, the strategy comes in because it's not like I will know every festival promote, every festival owner in Germany. It's, I mean, whilst there is a lot of involvement from different corporations, the, you know, I will partner with someone in that country, which in terms of my promoter for the Netherlands will be my partner in that territory. And typically they will help guide what we do and to build that up um, and that's where going forward with doesn't matter what genre partnering with the right promoter in that country at whatever level you get the artist is critical because you're it's their their boots on the ground you're relying on their advice and um it's in their interest for things to go well because that pays their bills so i think with you know i think with um with someone like vance like and, and this is another one where he will have, if he's coming from another agent, he'll have promoters in each territory. He'll already have a London promoter. He'll have a Scottish promoter. He'll have a Dutch promoter. It's very rare. And this is a personal preference, but um, 
I don't think I'm original by saying this. I would rarely come in and change the team. You know, it'd be a case of I'm the new guy in the team. If you're the Dutch promoter, there's no reason to change. Okay. Let's just keep, if we find a reason to change, we will. But at the same time, it's pretty unfair to come in and change someone who's done a good job just because you're the new agent. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the difference. And um, typically that, that works. I mean, you, you don't want to kind of, the worst thing in the world would be to be the agent, come in, change promoter in that territory, and then the next time through the ticket sales be a lot less. Yes. Yeah. So. It's not, I, that's a, it's interesting then Julian Barker, I don't know why I keep adding an R in her name, Baker. Uh, so you, this is, must be the, the oddest one for you because then you discover her, as you say, like 12 people in a bar or whatever, and then you get Netflix, Athlete A, and appointments as playing as the, as the start music for it. It's like, yeah. she's fucking, she's everywhere. She's absolutely everywhere. She's amazing. Like, how does that feel? How does that feel to be involved in that? And that progression for, for a bar with 12 people to this fucking documentary on Netflix? I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm proud for her because she's an incredible musician. I'm proud that I'm on the team and I can work for her. That's kind of at the end of the day, like I, I can't write the songs. I, I mean, I'm a yeah. terrible guitar player. I, <laughs> I'm a singer. I can't write the songs. I can't perform them. So, I, but I'm proud that I'm, I play a very small part in the bigger picture. Um, but at the same time, like I have a satisfaction that my contribution has helped a little bit. And, you know, when she played Union Chapel in London, it was, as a fan of her music, I thought it was an incredible show. And I got to witness it. And you're there during the show and you just think like, you know, my little piece of involvement here has, you know, facilitated this happening. Yes. So it's, it's a great thing there. And I think that, um, I mean, it's, it's obviously more rewarding when, you know, I think that the, there are artists in my roster who I would be, you know, more friendly with than others, or, you, you know, it's just one of those things. You're not best friends with everyone, but it definitely is rewarding when, you know, in Julian's case, she is possibly one of the nicest humans I've ever met. Yeah. Um, and it's very, I'm very happy for her that um, hopefully the continued success, because I think yeah. she deserves it. She's put the work in. No, she does. She does. It's absolutely fantastic. The, okay, this is, I said that was the final question, but this is the final question. <laughs> so you've got the, we, I don't organise damnation to get rich because you need to be stupid to try to do that. I don't suppose you're getting booking metal bands to be rich because we could just find easier ways to make money. This isn't the way to do it. But with that, money does matter and some sort of success or recognition does matter for folk. So when you've got a guy like Vance Joy, who is selling out the Alexander Palace and is doing 10 million plays per month. How do you find the motivation still to find that higher power or load and be like, here's a band we're going to get with like 800 streams and no fees. So, because an email is an email. Somebody emails you for Vance Joy and if you work in commission or your salary, whatever way it works, you're like, well, Vance Joy's where the money is. 
you need to then go and find that same motivation to do that for the band you've found with all people in London. So how, how, do, you, how do you keep that burning? It's, uh, well, I mean, when you see Vane play to 300 people at the New Cross Inn in London, and it's, it feels like dangerous, or <laughs> there's nothing like that. It's, that's a, an incredible experience. Like it's, I'm not, as, as everyone will tell you, I'm not the one that will be in the mosh pit. I'll be at the back of the room up against the wall, but I absolutely love that sort of show. Um, and I think that, you know, again, uh, I've worked with um, a, a punk band called the Menzingers. From, I, I saw them on a, on a UK tour in 2000 and, uh, shit now, maybe 2009. Um, and they were with two other British bands and, and they played the Old Blue Last in London. There was maybe, I don't know, I want to say like a hundred people in there and their album blew me away. Their live show blew me away. And I had to sell them to work with me. I remember sitting in the bar of the Old Blue Last trying to sell myself and feeling like I was a, I wasn't wearing a suit, but I definitely felt like a suit. And, um, and you know, we've worked together ever since and, and taking them from supporting a band at the Old Blue Last. Uh, and, and now they can comfortably sell out the forum in London and they can sell out, you know, I think their last Glasgow show was um, uh, QMU. They sold that out. You know, they do 2000 tickets in Manchester, that sort of thing. And that is rewarding. Um, I think it's rewarding getting there, but it's also the fact that specific to rock music, uh, not every aspect of rock music, but certainly ones that I like to work within. The fans don't go away. If, if uh, the Menzing is a, a great example where, and the promoters love it because generally without record, with the record or without a record, the, the, the ticket sales are basically, in London, I think we've gone up almost a hundred tickets every tour. It's the most consistent thing you'll ever know. Yeah. And it's the, I, Maybe it's new fans, maybe it's just same fans who love them. But at the same time, it's, it's great. And I think that that's the hope for Loathe and High Power and While She Sleeps and everyone is that we can grow it, but it's not going away. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, um, I, I guess because I've never really, I've never really ridden the wave of an artist that's had a number one album, um, BBC, A-list, um, Brit Award, you know, I've never, I've never worked with an artist that's had all that. So the artists that I'm signing, I'm chasing artists that, you know, can just continue to do the business, whether they have that success or not. You know, there are artists where their live figures are heavily dictated by um, if they've got a single on radio or not. And yeah. I, I don't ever want to be in that position. I'd rather just, it's the people that have come out and, and that's that. And I think, rock music, um, I mean, you spoke about some bands earlier and I guess um, what's different is, you know, Disturbed and Shinedown in America got big on radio, but I don't book any of those sorts of bands, so I couldn't say for sure, but from an outside perspective, their fans just come back every single tour no matter what. Yeah. So it's a great business for them to be in. Yeah, so and it's, it's, strange, it's strange you see that because I I, I disliked um, Disturbed Ozfest 2001 as a teenager 
and hey, I've continued continued to dislike them twenty years later. So you're right. We, we do stick with what we like. And big Duncan and try to bring it back to Glasgow and Triple G. He said that about Dropkick Murphys. So it's like it makes no difference whether Dropkick Murphys get an album, don't have an album, a good album, a bad album, whatever. Stick them on the Badlands. You're gonna sell nine hundred tickets. They're all gonna come and they're all gonna party to Dropkick Murphys because. It makes no difference. That's these yep. fans were fans ten years ago. They'll be fans in ten years' time, and and that's what's going to happen. I mean, I'm you know, I, every time I die, I was a fan of before I was their agent, and I I've, I've been to every show in the city I lived at the time since I first discovered them. You know, every time I've had the chance to see Rancid, I've seen them. You know, yeah. I don't care if they never put out a record again. I will go see them every time I can. Absolutely. It's like, I, I mean, I, I'm, that's the exact same. It doesn't matter if it was Raging Speed Talk, it doesn't matter if it's Deftones, if I'm going to play in the city, if it, Glasgow, if I can go three miles into the city centre and go see them, I'll go see them. It'll not even matter if, if they don't have an album or the last album was shit. You're going to go see Deftones, you're going to go see Raging Speed Talk. So, listen, fuck, I think we've broke records tonight. God knows how long <laughs> we've been for about 17 hours. Oh, that, was, uh, that was fantastic. I really appreciate you coming out and do that. I hope, I pray that damnation happens this year. Paul Bearer, Iris, get your ass up for it. Let's get a few pints in. And thank you very much, Mr. Tom Taft. Nice one, man. Have a good one. You too, pal.